Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. That is how King Josiah of Jerusalem is described in the 23rd chapter of the second book of Kings. I told the beginning of Josiah's story a couple of years ago in my episode 2.6, Looky What I Found. But the end of Josiah's story is just as interesting as its beginning. This is what Second Kings has to say about how Josiah died. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him. But when Pharaoh Necho met him at Megiddo, he killed him. And that is it. It seems to be a rather abrupt ending for someone who is supposed to be like the greatest king ever. There's got to be more to the story. And you know how I react when something feels like that. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.7 Armageddon 609 BCE After long days of making endless decisions and judgments, meeting with advisors and ministers and tending to diplomatic visitors, Josiah always looked forward to the time that he would spend with one of his oldest friends, the secretary, Shafan. Some years ago, he had designated Shafan to keep watch over one of the projects that was dearest to Josiah's heart. So many years ago, it had been Shafan who had come to him with the discovery that had changed everything, a new scroll that had been discovered in the temple of Yahweh. Josiah would never forget what it was like to sit there and listen while the secretary read to him those ancient words. It was so thrilling and yet so frightening to hear all of the ways in which the people of Judah had not lived up to the commands of the law. In the years since, the priests and scribes in the temple had continued to study that law and to expand upon its meaning and application. But a few years later, Shaphan had come to him with a proposal for a new project. He suggested that the scribes could begin to compile a history of the people and rulers of Israel up until that time. They would go through the ancient annals of the kings and the traditions of the people, 
and write down the story of how the people had lived up to the expectations of the law, as well as how they had fallen short. It was a project that would take many generations, of course. Josiah knew that he would never hear the entire story, but he loved to listen to the amazing stories as they were written, and so he had commanded that Shaphan come to him at the end of every day and read from the latest scroll that the scribes were working on. On this particular day, Shaphan had arrived in great excitement. The scribes had only that day begun to work on a new scroll. It was to be the great story that would link the tales of the people's desert wandering to their settlement of the land. I will tell you the story of the man who took over after Moses died and who led the great campaign of conquest, Shaphan explained with great enthusiasm. His name is Joshua. Ah, yes, replied the king. I believe he was one of those who was with Moses in the book of the law, but I have never heard of this conquest. You will be amazed, the secretary said as he sat down cross-legged on the floor in front of the king's chair and began to take out a scroll. Here is what Yahweh says to Joshua as he takes on such an amazing task. And with that he quickly unrolled the scroll and began to read from a passage near the beginning. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and the Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong, and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed 
for Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. Josiah had listened spellbound. To hear such promises was deeply moving, and he could not help but see himself very much in the position of Joshua, a leader of God's people, who had been given the very same book of the law that Yahweh must have been talking about. It was as if Yahweh was speaking those very promises directly to him. When the secretary finished and rolled up the scroll with tender care once again, Josiah was speechless for several minutes. But eventually he gathered his wits enough to ask the question that burned in his mind. Is it true, Shaphan? Did Joshua really do that? Did God give him such success? It is true, my lord. He defeated all the people of the land. It is just that I happen to know that there are still many Canaanites who live in the land, and Jebusites, and even some Hittites. If those people still exist, wouldn't that mean that Joshua wasn't entirely... My lord! Shaphan seemed to be affronted that the king would say such a thing. But then he looked down at the scroll, a little flustered. Of course it is true. Is it not written on a sacred scroll? But the scroll is not finished yet, and I'm sure that it will come to explain how it is that the Canaanites and Jebusites still live among us. All I know so far is that so long as Joshua kept the book of the law close to his heart and to his mind, Yahweh gave him success wherever he went. Success wherever he went. Those were words that remained with Josiah a long time. He would repeat them to himself daily as he sat down to have one of his junior secretaries read from the book of the law to him. He did indeed meditate on the words of the book of the law day and night. They were often very useful words too, as if they had been written to apply directly to the challenges of ruling Judah in his own day, and not merely for a people who knew nothing but the lives of desert nomads. Every time he remembered that promise to Joshua, Josiah felt invincible, as if he could do no wrong. And Josiah, with the help of the priests and the scribes, did indeed manage in the years that followed to navigate many crises. There was, of course, widespread opposition to his policy of centralizing all of the worship in the country at the temple in Jerusalem. People everywhere cried out, enraged, but Josiah's confidence carried him through, and his kingdom knew much prosperity and peace. 
Sometimes. Sometimes it felt all too easy. Sometimes Josiah longed to test the promises of God and to do something outrageous in the name of Yahweh. Something that would prove once and for all to everyone that he was indeed a new Joshua. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah had always lived under the shadow of great empires. With Egypt to the south and the warlike peoples of Mesopotamia to the north and east, the job of the king seemed to be a never-ending juggling act, seeking to balance off those competing interests. For many generations, the great power throughout the entire region had been Assyria. So great and so unchallenged were the armies of Assyria that they had utterly destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and come close to doing the same to Judah in the south. But in the last few years, Josiah had begun to detect cracks in the powerful facade of Assyria. A new empire was rising far to the east in Babylon, and Josiah began to believe that everything might soon change. Of course, there was no way that an open alliance with Babylon could be formed. But Josiah began to look for a way to show support for Babylon without risking the wrath of Assyria. And then, unexpected, a great opportunity presented itself. All of a sudden, the entire court at Jerusalem was buzzing with news of a great movement of troops from the south. The armies of Egypt had appeared on the coastal plains, and they were marching north, marching towards Josiah's own heartland. Now, all of the intelligence indicated that the pharaoh, Necho, was not seeking to target Judah. He was just passing through on his way to support Assyria in its ongoing struggles with Babylon. But Josiah couldn't shake the feeling that this was an opportunity for him. Things were frantic in Jerusalem in those days. But Josiah still continued to set aside time to listen to the progress of the History Project. His old friend, Shaphat was now grown old and could not see well enough to read to him. But Shaphan's son, Ahikam, had taken on many of his father's old tasks and still came to read from the latest work the scribes had done in chronicling the history of the people. The stories were always thrilling and exciting. Lately, the scribes had been writing down the stories of a group of people known as judges who had led and often saved the people of the tribes in the days before kings. They were amazing stories. Josiah often found himself sitting on the edge of his throne as he listened. But 
though these judges often did enjoy some short-term success. It never seemed to last very long for the people of Israel in those stories. There was always a new enemy coming to oppress the people. So one day, as the secretary sat down and began to unroll the scroll to where he had left off last time, Josiah asked him about it. Ahikam, he said, I love these stories about Jephthah and Gideon and Samson, but I am struck by how their success never seems to last, and I wonder why it falls apart so easily. They, too, were servants of Yahweh, were they not? So why did they not have the same success as Joshua, who is still my favorite? Isn't it clear, my lord? Ahikam replied. Remember what my father told you about Joshua, and how the Lord told him to meditate on the law day and night. Clearly these judges did not do that. In fact, I suspect that they did not even have the law, and it was hidden for a very long time. Yes, said the king, it is as I had thought. As the leader of God's people, I have something that they didn't have. I have the book of the law, and I do think about it day and night. And doesn't that mean that whatever I may do in Yahweh's name, I can just know that I will have success? Ahikam knew that he could give no other answer. It is as you say, my king. Surely Yahweh will bless you with all success. Josiah went to bed that night and dreamt of glory unbounded. When, early the next morning, Josiah summoned the leaders of his army and ordered them to prepare to march for war. They didn't quite know how to respond. Against whom do we march, my lord? asked the general. Things are kind of dangerous out there right now, what with the Egyptians passing through the territory. The Egyptians are exactly why we are marching, replied the king. Surely Yahweh does not want us to allow such infidels to pass through our land. The man turned visibly paler and gulped as he stuttered. But it's the Egyptians, and there are so many of them. Yes? And who do we have with us? replied the king. We have Yahweh, and we have the book of the law to guide us. Our success will have no bounds. No one dared to challenge the king, but if they had, I doubt he would have even heard them. He spent his days, as the preparations were made, mostly in his room, 
he sent for Ahikam and had him read for him again the stories of the battle of Jericho and of Ai. Ahikam did so willingly. He loved those stories just as much as the king did. But when, after the readings were over, conversation turned to the idea of a confrontation with Necho, the king of Egypt, he did try to explain why he thought that some caution might be in order. But whenever he suggested that going to battle against Egypt might be a little bit different from storming through a breach at Jericho, the king would just ask, But have you not said that Yahweh is with me, just as Yahweh was with Joshua? The secretary could find no answer to that. Pharaoh Necho, like any good commander, had many scouts moving through the countryside in advance of his army. And so it did not take long for word to get back about troop movements among the Judeans. No one wanted to believe that the king of Judah would dare to challenge the military supremacy of Egypt, but there was no other explanation for what they were seeing. The pharaoh felt that he had no choice but to address the ridiculous situation. He discussed with his advisors, asking them the names of the local gods, and then summoned a messenger and sent him off to the king of Judah with this message. What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war, and Elohim has commanded me to hurry. See supposing Elohim, who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. I will tell you that it gave Josiah some pause to hear an oracle from the very lips of the king of Egypt, speaking in the name of Elohim, the God of Israel. I think he might have even had second thoughts for a moment when the message arrived. But then he remembered once again the promises of Yahweh to Joshua, and he sent for his armor-bearer. Gathering the troops was taking too long, he said. Whether everyone was ready or not, it was time to go. Josiah took his stand at Megiddo. He arranged his troops there on the hill that rose above the valley of Jezreel, a hill that the Greeks would one day call Armageddon. Josiah knew that the king of Egypt would have to pass through that way if he was going to manage to join his allies in Assyria. There were about a thousand Judean men standing on that ridge, the sun glinting off their spear tips, an impressive force for a kingdom like Judah. But there would be fifty Egyptians for every one of them coming 
out of that valley, and every man knew it. They all looked uneasily at each other, and there was much murmuring and mumbling and many a sidelong glance at the king and his bodyguard. Though he was no warrior, the king had ordered his friend Ahikam to join him on this day. A special scroll had been prepared, upon which was written key passages from the law, and the secretary gripped the scroll so tightly that his fingers were white. The king looked at his friend imploringly, but the secretary had not the wits about him to even speak. Josiah knew that he would have to address the men, that he would have to do something to steady their nerves. But the terror he felt was as great as theirs. He had eaten no breakfast, but still his stomach churned, and he felt spasms in his bowels. Finally, Josiah managed to catch his breath and stepped in front of the men. He slowly and pointedly removed the insignia of his royal rank, the emblems of the house of David, until he looked like just another warrior in the army of Judah. Men, he finally said, I stand before you today as one of you. Do you know why? No one dared to shout out the obvious answer to that question, that the Egyptians would target the king in their first assault as the most obvious way to break the Judean line quickly. No one dared to suggest that the king was just trying to save his own skin. I don't know whether Josiah himself knew the truth behind what he had done. Our victory is certain, the king cried, trying to convince himself as much as them. It is certain because Yahweh is on our side. You do not lead a king to lead you. You have the book of the law. The warriors didn't respond. There was no cheering. They stood in silence. The noise of the Egyptian troops ascending from the south grew only louder. The battle was embarrassingly short. In their first assault, the Egyptians let loose a barrage of arrows. Many were wounded as a result, and one of them, seemingly by chance, was the king himself. His wound was grave, and while he, unlike some of his less fortunate fellow soldiers, would be evacuated, and make it back to Jerusalem before dying in great pain. It was plain enough that he would not recover. Any resolve that the men of Judah had had quickly fell apart, and many simply turned and ran into the valley of Jezreel. There was no glory on that day, no miraculous rescue from on high. 
and there was only slaughter and death. Ahikam, the king's secretary and the son of his oldest friend, fled with the rest. In his confusion and terror, he did not even realize when he dropped the copy of the revered scroll. The scroll that had promised that no one who meditated upon it day and night could possibly be defeated. years ago on the last Wednesday of May, I told the beginning of the story of King Josiah on this podcast. I called that episode, Looky What I Found. It retold the story of the finding of the Book of the Law in the Temple, a book that most scholars identify as the Book of Deuteronomy, or at least a substantial part of the book. Many scholars today also believe that the introduction of the book of Deuteronomy also led to the creation of another biblical literary work that they have dubbed the Deuteronomistic History. This history, mostly contained in the books of Joshua, Judges, the Samuels, and the Kings, shows clear connections with the themes of the book of Deuteronomy. The theory is that these history books were created by the same community of scholars that had written and compiled the book of Deuteronomy. They used pre-existing oral traditions as well as written sources, which are sometimes referenced, to tell the story of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in a way that illustrated the importance of the people of Israel following the law of Deuteronomy. There is much discussion about scholars about this Deuteronomistic history. Not all scholars accept the theory behind the creation of these books, and there is much discussion on the timeline. Not being an expert, I assume that the project must have taken many generations to complete, but it could have started a few years after the discovery of the Book of the Law, while Josiah was still king of Judah. Josiah's death at the hands of the Egyptian army has always been a bit of a mystery. After all of the ways in which the Bible builds up Josiah as a hero, his death appears so odd, and it happens almost without comment by the Deuteronomistic historians. Are they embarrassed by it? Do they, like us, question why Josiah made such a clearly foolish decision to challenge the king of Egypt on the field of battle? I've always wondered whether there might not have been a connection between the extraordinary promises made in the Deuteronomistic history, especially in the book of Joshua, and the foolhardy decision made by King Josiah. And so I decided to tell this story to illustrate how that might have happened. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. 
make sure you subscribe so you can get the next one, which will be a special episode that comes out in one week. A great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is the perfect way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for this podcast is Ada. The mood music is a new composition created just for this episode by Gabrielle McCandless. It is called The King. Ada is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and it can be found at incompetech.com. You'll find links to Gabrielle McCandless's music on the show notes. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>